I speak these words in the name of our loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in today's Gospel, Mark takes us directly into the first acts of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Capernaum, he enters the center of learning, the synagogue, and begins to teach. And the people are astounded because Jesus teaches with authority and with power. He knows his subject intimately. And we can imagine that his audience listens with rapt attention as he offers them fresh insights into the ancient scriptures. And they contrast his teaching with that of the scribes, those teachers of the law whose lectures consist of simply recycling the lessons of those who had gone before. But then something truly amazing happens. A deranged man, possessed of an unclean spirit, appears at the rear of the synagogue. He shouts at Jesus, We know who you are, you Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? And with simple words, which could accurately be translated as, Shut up and go away, Jesus casts the spirit out. And with a shriek, it leaves the poor afflicted man. Now the people are truly stunned. What teaching? What power is this that casts out demons with a simple word? Well, we don't talk much about possession or evil spirits and exorcism in the Episcopal Church, do we? We tend to put that in a category with speaking in tongues, with faith healing, and snake handling. All these things are scriptural, but really? But the belief in demons and unclean spirits was a common fact of life in the ancient world. The Hebrew belief was that malevolent spirits were the offspring of fallen angels who consorted with humankind. If you go into the history, the ancient world was lousy with evil spirits. There was a demon of felled crops. There was a foul spirit who rendered women barren, unable to bear children. There was a spirit of avarice that turned otherwise honest persons into money-grubbing thieves. Heck, there's probably even an unclean spirit of heart disease, and that demon almost took me out. The world of the ancient Israelites must have seemed like literally a hell on earth. And one Hebrew writer offered the opinion that the evil spirits outnumbered humankind by a factor of some 13 to 1. Now that would be enough to make a person want to stay in bed. But then that would be the spirit of sloth at work, wouldn't it? So, being somewhat confused, my normal state, I turned to that long-standing faithful repository of wisdom and learning, which is our adult Bible study class. And I asked the questions. What are your thoughts on spirits and possession, demons and the like? Do they have a place in our modern day church? And boy, did that spark a discussion. And most of the ideas that came up centered on addiction or mental illness as modern markers for demonic possession. Bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, narcissism were mentioned. Those suffering from mental illness often speak of hearing voices or being directed by some other are engaging in what we call irrational behavior. All the above are indicators of what we would term things that are not real, 
born of a state of delusion. But then a wise class member pointed out that while demons of mental illness may not be objective, meaning provable by the scientific method, they're certainly real to the person suffering from them. And in New Testament times, the ravings and the irrationality of the mentally ill were certainly taken as signs of demonic possession. Then, addiction as wide-ranging as alcohol, drugs, gambling, overeating, and SEX were discussed. And as another equally wise class member pointed out, an addiction is something that begins as a pleasurable experience, something good that ends up robbing the sufferer of free will and the ability to manage your life successfully. The addiction becomes all-consuming. What was initially a good thing turns into an overwhelming obsession, a bad thing. And in scriptural accounts, isn't this just how Satan works? Insidiously, the whispered promise of pleasure that ultimately ends in complete domination of the victim. Then interestingly, another of my astute classmates pointed out that a potential modern addiction shared by many of us is our attachment to our digital devices and our reliance on social media. A good test of this is, what's the first thing you'll reach for when you wake up in the morning? Could it be your cell phone to check your Facebook page? Think about that for just a second. And I wonder, if you plunked a first century Israelite down at town center on a Saturday to observe multitudes of people walking head down staring at strange amulets in their hands and carrying on conversations with unseen spirits, how would that ancient person react? Well, I'm pretty sure they'd be terrified, convinced they were surrounded by a horde of demons. And then for a more theologically based discussion, I turned to a well-respected local priest and talented preacher. Her <clears throat> uh -huh, take on this was, well, if Jesus said it, we should believe it. Spirits exist, surely. The spirits of gospel times recognized Jesus for who he really was, the Messiah of God, come to establish the kingdom and to banish evil forces from the earth. The spirits cried out in fear, for they realized that their end approached. Light had come to drive out the darkness. And in a subtle irony, the one who came to cast out the evil spirits was possessed by a spirit himself. But that spirit, of course, was the spirit of God. And consider this. We have no problem proclaiming our belief in a Holy Spirit. We do it every Sunday. And as we profess this Holy Spirit, is it much of a logical stretch to allow that unholy spirits exist as well? Or as many of us have no problem believing in angels, is it unreasonable for us to consider that demons and malevolent spirits may live alongside us also? But then again, we accept that what we don't know about the nature of God is boundless. And this is humility. Realizing that as finite creatures, we can never hope to understand an infinite being. 
So, okay, let me turn this airplane a little bit and try to take us somewhere. <laughs> so on Tuesday of last week, I went with a group of friends to see the limited release screening of A Case for Love. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but it's a powerful and moving documentary that is a must-see. The official plot summary reads, an investigation into how Bishop Michael Curry's teachings of unconditional, sacrificial love are applied in the wider community. Includes interviews with well-known personalities and common people. And get this, the production company is Grace-Based Films, which happen to be affiliated with All Saints Episcopal Church in, wait for it, Beverly Hills, California. So fellow Episcopalians, it appears that church may be in the movie business too. But I won't say much more about the movie other than to note that Amazon has it listed as coming soon. And to tell you that at the beginning of the movie, a couple of ominous words appear on the screen in large letters. Polarization and demonization. Uh-oh. The polarization is the division into two camps with sharply, sharply contrasting sets of opinions and beliefs. Polarization crowds out the middle ground. We lose the willingness to listen to alternate viewpoints. We even deny that those in the opposing camp have a right to any contrary opinion or any voice. Several academic studies have indicated that the U.S. is polarizing at a much quicker rate than other Western democracies. Our default position becomes to retreat to our comfortable corners and tune into the opinion source that reinforces our already formed beliefs and crowds out any opposing viewpoint. And trust me that I'm speaking to myself here too. But then on the heels of polarization comes demonization. A precursor term is othering, as in there is us, and then there are those others who are not us. And since those others are not us, they must be bad, and not only bad, but pure evil. And the rise of polarization and demonization are due in part to the rise of social media, an outlet where the most fantastical and destructive lies and conspiracies can spread to millions with no threat of repercussion to the author. And then our digital devices facilitate social media. As our phones and computers are mostly always on, always with us, always accessible. Now this is not to say that social media and digital devices are inherently unhealthy or corrupt. Both are morally neutral. Both are totally dependent on the inputs and the motivations of the user. So we can instantly communicate with someone on the other side of the world. We can easily maintain contact, with, maintain contact with widely separated friends and family. We can celebrate together. We share pictures and stories. The isolated provided an easily accessible community. And those are good things. But unfortunately, we also hear that all Democrats are Satan-worshipping pedophiles and every Republican is a racist homophobe. Oh, and by the way, I'm a Kenyan prince, 
who needs your help to free up millions of dollars. And I think you get the point. But back to the earlier discussion about addiction. When something begins as good, but through misuse and abuse can be turned into something bad. I think we can apply that to social media as well. Or consider the insidious whisperings of the scriptural Satan. Hey, spread this lie and I promise you millions of dollars in return. Am I way off base here? But I believe this. When we start using terms such as demonization and evil to refer to each other, we've entered the arena of spiritual warfare. An arena where Christians renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. And we renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. And I'm sure you good Episcopalians recognize that as part of our baptismal service. But I emphasize the we renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. There are certainly dark forces at work in our world seeking to divide us and confuse us. There are powers looking to fill our minds with contempt for each other. To encourage us to rage against each other and make us forget that we're all creatures of the one God. Dr. King summed it up when he said, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish together as fools. But there is a way forward. We have the power to minister to a hurting world. And we have the authority to do so at our fingertips. Just this close. And the power and authority trusted to us is the same as that exercised by the carpenter from Nazareth when he taught the word and cast out demons in Capernaum so many years ago. And that power, of course, is love. The love we call agape, selfless, sacrificial love. Paul tells us in the first letter to the Corinthians that this love is patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. And I'll add to that another quote from Dr. King. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. But can it be that simple? Well, why don't we explore that further together? Now, Michael Curry spent his ministry preaching and practicing the message of self-sacrificial, transformative love. Along with the movie, A Case for Love, again, which is a must-see, Bishop Curry offers a journaling exercise. It goes like this. For each day of the next month, commit an intentional, emphasis on the word intentional, act of unselfish love. Record it in your journal, 
describe the act, describe how it impacted the recipient, and describe how it impacted you. At the end of the month, if the practice speaks to you, consider continuing it. The journal can be downloaded from the A Case for Love website, and I've left a sample, or will leave a sample of the journal in the narthex. And for those who aren't computer savvy and want to try this, I or Kathleen, somebody, we can help you get a copy of the journal if you want to try it out. In Bishop Michael's words, he says, I can't do everything, but I can do something. I can do what Michael can do. So I invite you to try the journaling exercise. Let's see what happens. And I hope you'll share your experiences and insights with me as we go along. Because, again, a hurting world needs us, and Christ is counting on us. Amen.